Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. I really am so excited that you've decided to join us for this service. You know, people come to church or watch a church service online for lots of reasons. I don't know why you decided to join us today, but here's something I do know. God is at work in your life and he's brought you here to this place in this moment to accomplish his purposes. Since people grow here, you will leave changed. I trust his work in your life. So can you. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. We have a fantastic team who work tirelessly to help people grow. We love helping you discover the best path forward to deepening your spiritual roots, whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We don't have any perfect people here. We are all in process, working through our junk, and sometimes that is a messy process. So if you can embrace our mess, we'll embrace yours, and together we'll let God work to clean it all up. And if you're just checking out Jesus and church, this is a safe place to bring your questions and doubts. We're all on a journey. And wherever you are on your journey, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, Let's join our service. Now, if you are just joining us for the first time today, well, you picked a good week to be here. Uh, we've been working our way through the gospel of the Apostle John for a while, and we've reached the epic two-part conclusion. This is what it's all about. Uh, as Christ followers, everything we do hinges on this moment in history. Without death, there could be no resurrection. Without death, there would be no payment for sin. Without resurrection, there would be no life for Christ, obviously, but also for us. And without the resurrection, there would be no church. In fact, none of us would have even ever heard of this carpenter-turned-rabbi from Nazareth who claimed to be the savior of the world. If he had stayed dead, his followers, who weren't expecting him to come back to life anyway, would have gone home to pick up the pieces of their lives. When Jesus died, their hope died. If he had stayed dead, there would have been nothing to write about. I mean, think about it. He wasn't the only person at that point in history to claim to be the Jewish Messiah. They'd heard it all before, but we've never heard of any of those Messiah wannabes because they stayed dead. Their claims died with them. That Jesus was resurrected was so well known at the time, too many people saw him alive when he should have been dead, that lots of people started documenting the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was too wonderful not to document it. 
We have four of these accounts in what we call the Bible, but there were many more, and some of them have survived antiquity as well. Uh, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Josephus, just to name a few, uh, were non-Christians who wrote about this Jewish carpenter because of what happened in the years after he died and then came back to life. They would have had to write about something else if Jesus had stayed dead because it would have been a non-story. But let's just slow our roll just a little bit. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Uh, in fact, let's just back up a bit and set the scene. Uh, John the disciple wrote his gospel years and years after the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written. And those gospels had been circulating throughout the church for years. And at this point, the church wasn't just a little start-up anymore, thanks to... To the Apostle Paul and others, there were churches spread around the entire Mediterranean rim. In fact, John probably wrote this gospel from one of those churches in Ephesus. At this point, he was probably the last living eyewitness to Jesus, and he was concerned about the growing heresy in the church surrounding the idea that Jesus was only a spirit, that he didn't actually have a body. Now, we've already talked about that in this series. Uh, John wanted to complete the picture of Jesus that the other Gospels had painted by demonstrating that Jesus was not just a good man, but God, and not a spirit, but God in a bod. Fully man and fully God. Now, this is an important theological distinction. Jesus existed eternally with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He added humanity to his repertoire of characteristics for a season, voluntarily laying aside some of his godly attributes for that season, and then taking them up again after his assignment on earth was done. When we talk about essential doctrine versus non-essential doctrine, this is one of the big essentials. This is one of those doctrines that makes us uniquely Christian. John wanted us to believe in this Jesus. The first 12 chapters of John's gospel, though not written chronologically, build this fully God and fully man case from Jesus' public ministry, which lasted around two and a half years. Chapters 13 through 20, on the other hand, take place over the course of about three to four days and are focused on Jesus' final moments and teaching with his disciples. Now, so at this point, Jesus has entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey to great fanfare from the crowds. And he's had what we call the Last Supper, which we should note was most likely not the Passover meal, but one of the meals during the week of Passover each year. And we'll, we'll celebrate that in, in a second. Uh, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. And then uh, he's also prayed in Gethsemane, been betrayed, arrested, and, and, and endured multiple trials. Now, before we go on, let's just look at the timing. This is a nuance that most of the Christian church throughout history hasn't paid much attention to, probably because we know very little about the practice of Jewish festivals in general and Passover festival specifically. The church, capital C, traditionally celebrates Jesus' death on what we call Good Friday. But biblical nerds have done lots of research and using computers has figured out that the, the year Jesus was most likely crucified, 
Passover day, uh, the end of Passover week, would have begun on Thursday at sundown, making Friday a Passover Sabbath before the actual weekly Sabbath on Saturday. Spoiler alert, Passover isn't on Friday every year. Uh, while we celebrate Easter on Sunday every year, it, it wouldn't actually be on Sunday every year. We've annualized it for our calendar, but technically it would fall according to the Jewish calendar. So Passover could be on a Tuesday, making Wednesday a Passover Sabbath, and then back to normal life for Thursday and Friday before the normal weekly Sabbath on Saturday. And in that case, actual Easter would be on Friday. Good Jews, and the Jewish leaders considered themselves to be the best of Jews, would never have been involved in trials and crucifixion on the Passover Sabbath. They would have been at home not doing those things in order to stay good Jews. And that also means that the Passover sacrifice that they oversaw would have been done on Thursday at about 3 p.m. Since Jesus was the perfect Passover atonement for sin sacrifice, he would have died at that time as well. And that's why there was this rush to get everything done on Thursday before sundown. Because they went into lockdown as soon as Passover Sabbath began. That's one of the reasons the Jewish leaders had wanted to wait until the Passover was over to deal with Jesus. Well, that and the crowds. You know, those pesky crowds we've been talking about that kept getting in the way of the Jewish leaders' plans. Passover was one of three annual festivals that required pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Every year at this time, the population of Jerusalem would jump about two million people. So to say crowds is probably a bit of an understatement. It was wall-to-wall -wall people. It's a little ironic that Jesus had already prophesied that he would be killed in these moments, but the people that actually wanted to kill him wanted to wait until next week when things had settled down. Now, if all of this nerd stuff is correct, that means Jesus' last supper on Wednesday night was not the Passover meal, but a Passover meal, because the celebration lasted all week long, which would also explain why there was no mention of the Passover lamb at dinner, which is a little weird if you think about it. And now it is Thursday morning when we pick up the story with actual Passover fast approaching. We're starting at John chapter 19, verse 16 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. Then Pilate turned Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went to the place called Place of the Skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha. Now, John doesn't give us the same details that we see in other Gospels. Pilate uh, turned Jesus over to be crucified, but before he was crucified, uh, he was beaten and mocked before carrying the cross by himself. It was the usual practice of Rome to make the condemned carry their own crossbeam to an already placed vertical post. Uh, we 
also know that for whatever reason, we aren't told, but probably blood loss and weakness, Jesus couldn't carry it all the way. So the soldiers drafted a crowd member, Simon from Cyrene, to carry it the rest of the way to Golgotha. We call it Calvary because that is the Latin equivalent to the Jewish word Golgotha, which means cranium or skull. No one really knows why it was called that. We know it was outside the city, but not how far outside the city. It was probably a regular location for Roman crucifixion because they liked to reuse their materials. But there wouldn't have been any skulls lying around. They would be unclean, and the Jewish leaders wouldn't have allowed them to just be lying there. The bodies, with their heads attached, were usually disposed of by burial if their families were allowed to claim them or by tossing them in the dump. One of the possible locations of Golgotha does kind of look like a skull, but no one really knows where it was located. Too much has changed in Jerusalem over 2,000 years, and where it wasn't really isn't all that important. It's what they did there that makes it important. There, they nailed him to the cross. Two others were crucified with him, one on either side with Jesus between them. And Pilate posted a sign on the cross that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek so that many people could read it. Now, besides having to carry their own crossbeam, the condemned usually wore a sign around their neck announcing their crime as a deterrent for would-be lawbreakers. So, though the, no, none of the Gospels mention this, Jesus most likely wore this sign around his neck as he walked to Calvary. It was written the way it was to irritate the Jewish leaders and in multiple languages to reflect the diversity of the two million visitors to the city. Then the leading priests objected and said to Pilate, change it from the king of the Jews to he said, I'm the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, no, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. So that is what they did. Now, Jesus was stripped naked before being nailed to the cross. I know the movies don't show him that way, but he would have been naked. There, that would be part of the humiliation. He normally wore a chiton, or an undergarment against the skin, and at least one hemation, or robe or cloak. Because cloth was valuable, they would have ripped apart the outer robe at the seams and split it among themselves. However, the seamless undergarment would have been far less valuable if it were torn, so they threw dice for it. John includes this detail to show the fulfillment of David's prophecy in Psalm 22. Verse 25, standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, the only, rec the only disciple we have record of attending the crucifixion is John himself, but we also see that Mary and Mary and Mary 
were there uh, as well. What's the number one female name in history? You guessed it, it's Mary. Probably some other unnamed supporters were there too, including other disciples. We just don't know for sure. Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. And to fulfill scripture, he said, I am thirsty. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put it on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips, which, as we discovered before Easter, was a soldier's version of two-buck chuck. When Jesus had tasted it, he said, It is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, in Greek, it is finished is the word tetelestai. The, the two-buck Chuck didn't quench his thirst, but it did, as Warren Wiersbe notes, enable him to utter that shout of triumph in a loud voice. It is finished. In Greek, tetelestai means it is finished, it stands finished, and it always will be finished. It isn't really how we would talk, but at that time, the term tetelestai was used in, by various people in everyday life. A servant might use it when reporting, I have finished the work assigned to me, to his master. So here it applies to the suffering servant who gave up his life, reporting the completion of his earthly assignment. The term would also be used when a priest examined an animal sacrifice and found it faultless. So here, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the one without spot or blemish, was found faultless. An artist who completed a picture, a writer who completed a manuscript might say, it is finished. And here Jesus completes the picture that God has been painting or the story that he has been writing for centuries. Because of the cross, we understand better the Old Testament. Jesus completes the picture. And then probably the most meaningful tetelestai, when used by a merchant, means the debt is paid in full. Jesus met the demands of our sin debt. He paid it off in full. It is finished. It stands finished. And it will always be finished. To Tetelestai. And then Jesus gave up his spirit. Meaning that Jesus' life uh, ended because he chose to give it. It wasn't taken from him. And though John doesn't give us the information here, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus died at the time the Passover lamb would have been slain in the temple. And as we've already discussed, it was the day of preparation for Passover, and the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there the next day, which was the Sabbath, and a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. So they asked Pilate to hasten their deaths by ordering that their legs be broken. Then their bodies could be taken down. Now, crucifixion finds its roots among the Phoenicians and the Persians. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that they came to the practice of crucifixion after experimenting on lots of lab rats to find the best way to execute someone slowly, to prolong suffering and delay death as long as possible. They tried stoning, drowning, burning, boiling in oil, strangulation, and even flaying before settling on crucifixion as the worst of the worst ways to die. 
Alexander the Great adopted crucifixion for the Romans and they had perfected the art of extending death and maximizing pain. The longest record of delayed death by crucifixion is nine days on a cross. Charles Swindoll tells us that for Rome, crucifixion combined four qualities the Romans prized the most in, a, in an execution. Unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation. Though the, the victim was typically whipped prior to crucifixion, the executioner could determine how long the person survived on the cross by adjusting the degree to which the injured victim, uh, he injured the victim during the whipping. If they wanted the person to die longer, they might only use simple leather straps for the lashing. For a quicker death, a whip with jagged sheep bones braided into the ends could be used. Because nails were expensive, the victim was generally tied to the cross with a rope, which also extended the death process. Death usually came by exposure, dehydration, starvation, or fatigue asphyxia. In that case, the victim simply became too weak to pull in his next breath, which led to suffocation. While on the cross, the victim would have had to keep his body in constant motion to relieve the pain in his arms, chest, and legs, which, if they were nailed to the cross, only agitated the nail wounds further. And unless the guards broke their legs, the primary cause of death for someone nailed to the cross would be hypervolemic shock or excessive blood loss or cardiac or respiratory arrest. Many people believe that broken legs would lead the victim to suffocate without the ability to push up their legs. But more recent research suggests that a broken femur in a closed wound could also result in the loss of two liters of blood. Multiply that by two for both broken femurs. The, that, that blood hemorrhage would deepen the level of shock with a drop in blood pressure and congestion in the lower extremities, leading to unconsciousness, coma, and death. It would have been an abomination to leave a body hanging overnight, especially on a Sabbath and a festival Sabbath at that. So in verse 32, we see that, that so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the two men crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they didn't break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth so that you also may continue to believe. These things happened in fulfillment of the scriptures that say, not one of his bones will be broken, and they will look on the one they pierced. Now, John includes these details because it not only proved that Jesus had a physical body, but he really died. One of the heresies that John was writing against some 60 years later was that Jesus simply swooned and didn't really die. He just woke up later in the coolness of the tomb. But John was really more concerned, as we've already covered, about the heresies that said that Jesus didn't have an actual body. And again, John wanted to make sure that everyone understood, fully God, fully human. But there is also symbolic meaning behind the blood and water. The blood speaks to our justification, the water to our sanctification and cleansing. The blood takes care of our guilt. The water 
the stain of our sin. Verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so, because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, once the soldiers' work was done, Jesus' followers took over. Uh, some scholars believe that had it not been for Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, Jesus' body would have been carried off to some obscure, accursed ditch. But God had two aces in the hole ready to go, Joseph and Nicodemus. Now, this isn't the first time we've met them. They show up in other places in the gospel. Nicodemus had come to Jesus by night trying to get his questions answered in secret, although this incident certainly outed him as a Jesus follower. Joseph was a rich man, a prominent member of the Jewish council. He was a good and righteous man who didn't agree with what the council did to Jesus. Prior to becoming a Jesus follower, he was part of a believing minority of Jews who were praying for the Messiah to come, and he had obviously found him in Jesus. One of the mysteries surrounding Joseph is why he had a tomb ready to go so near the crucifixion site. Most religious Jews wanted to be buried in the holy city, not holy city adjacent. And Joseph certainly could have afforded to be buried in the city. And that assumes that the of Arimathea part of Joseph of Arimathea means that he was originally from there but now lived in Jerusalem. Not that he was just in town for the Passover feast. Matthew, Luke, and John tell us that the tomb was new. It had never been used and that it belonged to Joseph. But had he hewn it out for himself or for Jesus? Maybe even that day. Uh, up to this point... He was a secret Christ follower. So it could be that since he would have been in all of the meetings and trials as a Jewish council member, he knew what was coming. And out of respect for Jesus, out of devotion, and I'm sure led by the Holy Spirit, he spent the day preparing for Jesus' burial. There wouldn't have been enough time before sundown to start the preparation after he died. Uh, even if they had already had the tomb just sitting around for some day, there would be linens to buy and some 75 pounds of spices, which could be challenging to accomplish because as merchants were closing up their shop for the day. At the point that the soldiers lowered Jesus from the cross, Joe and Nick took over. They would have had to massage his arms to his sides in order to relax rigor mortis, which would have certainly set in because of the dropping temperature and physical exertion before his death. Then they would have washed his body before anointing it with oil and then wrapped it in a single linen cloth. They would have tied a separate cloth from under his chin up over his head in order to keep his mouth closed once rigor mortis had ended and his muscles relaxed. After that, they would have wrapped his body from head to toe in strips of linen soaked in a mixture of spiced resin with around 75 pounds of aromatic spices to combat the odor of decomposition. Only then 
would they lay his body in the burial cave prepared by Joseph. According to tradition, sometime later after the body had decomposed, the family would gather the bones and place them in a family bone box along with those of their forefathers. But even though the sun would be setting soon, the Jewish law required that the body of someone who had been executed be buried the same day. So they probably weren't able to finish completely, which explains why the Marys returned, to, returned on Sunday after Passover and Passover Sabbath to, uh, to uh, listen, let's see, Passover Sabbath and normal Sabbath, that's it, to um, finish the job that the men had started. And then, of course, the stone was rolled over the entrance of the grave to keep grave robbers and wild animals out and the smell of decomp in. And, of course, we know that this particular tomb was sealed shut by Rome and left under guard where Jesus, fully God and fully man, lay dead and buried. Ostensibly dead forever. But as I said at the beginning, he didn't stay dead which we will get to next week. So let's not get ahead of ourselves and return to this moment because all of history hinged on this moment. Some of you uh, here in the room, some of you watching online, some of your lives also hinge on this moment. Uh, Most of us here have already decided to follow Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But it is likely that some of you stand at the precipice of deciding the trajectory of your life. That Jesus was a historical figure is without question. History proves it, both in and out of the documents we call the Bible. That he claimed to be not only God, but God in the flesh, come to make restoration with God possible isn't in question. Again, history proves that out. History proves his death, his burial, and as we'll see next week, his resurrection. And anyone who can claim what Jesus claimed, predict what Jesus predicted about his own death and resurrection is worth listening to, worth giving your life to. And here's why that matters. The only place to find wholeness in life, peace in life, freedom in life is through a restored relationship with God. Our sin has broken that relationship. Every other religion in the world tells you that you have to do something to fix it. Be good enough. Do good enough. Give enough. But Jesus did it for us. Because we could never be holy enough to be in relationship with God on our own. You are here today, watching online today, because there is some part of you that knows that what I'm saying is true about you. You sense there is something missing, something more to life than what you've experienced before. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution to brokenness. He is peace in a peaceless world. He is freedom. All you have to do is say yes. Now, in just a moment, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to say yes. But before we do that, After we pray and sing a couple of songs, we're going to share in communion together. So for those of you who have already decided to follow Christ, John's given us quite a reminder of the cost of tetelestai. So as we pray, I invite you to prepare your heart for communion with a renewed sense of gratitude. And at the same time, let that gratitude renew your commitment to live life 
like Jesus, to become like Jesus in your everyday life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you that Jesus was willing to lay aside some of his godly attributes for a season and limit himself in a human body so that he could carry out the assignment that you gave him, which was to live a perfect life, fully obedient to the law, and then die a horrific death to pay the penalty for my sin, to make up for uh, the, the way that I have broken my relationship with God. And not just for me, but for all of us. And if you're here today, if you're watching, and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, again, it's really simple. All you have to do is acknowledge that truth. Acknowledge that your sin has broken any possibility of relationship with God. Your sin offends a holy God. And then receive the free gift of Jesus. Acknowledge that Jesus came and gave his life for you. And then when he rose again three days later, made it possible for you to have life as well. Not just life in eternity, which will be fantastic, but life now, peace now, hope now, wholeness now. We call that surrendering your life to Jesus. And it's the start. It isn't the finish, it's the start. So just say yes to that. Father, for those of us who do already live our lives for you, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the peace and hope and wholeness that he brings to our lives. And we pray, Father, that we would never forget the cost that he paid for us to walk in freedom and life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is proof of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, 
or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you're on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.